3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to Monday Breakfast 2019. Uh, I hope everyone is having a great start to the day. And Happy New Year to you, Jackson. New Year, new me. No, still the same me. Good morning, everyone. I'm sorry. Good morning for everyone. <laughs> yeah. I've made some small changes. I've been getting a lot more public transport. That's been one of my New Year's resolutions. Okay. And 13 days in, 14 days in, how's that going? It's going good. I, I've actually found this is, I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but the slowing down process of sitting down on a train or tram, I feel like I've gained time by making mm-hmm. this decision, even though it takes slightly longer sometimes to get from place to place. You gain all this, like, reading time and thinking time, and you get to, I don't know, this just kind of makes me relax more. So I, I, think, that. I think definitely the time on, particularly train, I find, um, you know, can be quite a, a good process. Like you said, you can um, read something or listen to something or whatever you choose to do. Um, but particularly for myself living uh, on the upfield line, it is uh, quite a nightmare to actually get on the train itself. It's cancelled, delayed or um, terminated further up the line. It's um, quite a difficult process. So actually being on the train is fine, but there's all the little bits in between that make it difficult. But mm. it is a um, good way to get around. Yeah. I'm living on the Craigburn line now as well, so I'm experiencing how crowded that is as mm. well. Desperately needs mm-hmm. more services. Well, um, we've got uh, we've got an exciting show. And, you know, we're, we're very excited to be uh, back here in the chairs for another year. And, um, you know, we've got some uh, things, exciting things coming up. And hopefully our listeners can come on a journey in 2019 with us. And, mm. you know, we'll all just discover who we are. Mm. A journey by public transport where we can at times relax and at times stress out. You could be like... listening to us on a train right now. Or a tram. Mm-hmm. Or on a bicycle. Or on foot. These are all valid options for transportation. A car, private helicopter. We don't really mind how you listen. Hmm. People, the audience can't can't um, see the gestures you're making. Mm. Mm. I don't know about private helicopter. I'd say get, oh. rid, get rid of that. Okay, it's a bit ostentatious. <laughs> well, let's uh, give a bit of a rundown of the show. We're going to be having um, a little bit of a chat. I think a little bit later on. Um, push back alternative news today because we've got so much um, crammed into the show that we'll, we've certainly got a lot of things to discuss um, on that. We'll discuss a bit later. Um, but we do have a, a very good show coming up. And to start with, we've got Kamari, who's from Doxa Camps. It's talking about uh, summer camps for um, young people that need a, a bit of a break um, and also some alternative pathways into university. It's good. 
kind of time of year to, to chat about some of those things. Mm. What? Yeah, that'll, that'll be really interesting. And then at uh, 7.30, we'll be talking to Cork Edwards, a Rudgery woman and lifelong activist, just reflecting on some of the rallies of the last few weeks, the anti-Nazi protests uh, in St Kilda and the follow-up protest last weekend at uh, the State Library, or this weekend just gone, I should say. Uh, and just yeah, having to think about ways to engage with um, uh, targeted minorities in, a, in an appropriate fashion and some, some of the ways that that was approached across the last few weeks. So it would be good to chat to Cork. And then uh, following from that, we've got one of the editors of Blackfellow Revolution. It's a page on Facebook that uh, posts really good content about Indigenous issues. Uh, Dee Phillips is the woman's name. who will be coming on uh, to chat with us about, I suppose, yeah, Indigenous uh, thoughts in the lead-up to what will be another big invasion day, I'm sure. Um, and also maybe reflect a little on the government's attempt to coerce local councils to hold citizenship ceremonies uh, in a particular dress code, apparently, on Australia uh, on um, excuse me January twenty sixth, uh, moving forwards. As Scott Morrison said, I don't mind if you uh, put your sandals and or your thongs and shorts on later, but when you're getting inducted into my country, make sure you're well dressed. That's a really important issue. That did he Morrison... use the phrase "my country"? Well, I'm not sure about that, but it, sounded, it certainly comes across that way. And a very strange man he is. Yeah, things are going well. Someone posted, uh, what was it, something like, Australia Day Crackdown <laughs> is one of the oddest headlines to appear in recent years. Um, yeah. It just seems like a very heavy-handed, ham-fisted approach to mm. uh, a culture war, doesn't mm. it? You will celebrate how we say you celebrate. Yes. No one celebrates without a beer. <laughs> well, he is a, he, as he showed on his um, Queensland bus tour, that um, Scott Morrison is a man of the people. He knows how to have a have a beer and have a pie. But but you're not on the bus, Scott. No. Why, why have you got a bus, Scott? Not oh, to visit all the people in Queensland. Yeah, but, but you're not getting on the bus, are you? No, but I but I but I've got to get around to everyone in Queensland. Sometimes the schedule means you got to fly. Yeah, but why do you have the bus? That was fantastic. It was like, you know. Common. And uh, to round out the show, we've got uh, Tony Lee from Minus 18 coming to chat about um, Minus 18's involvement in the Midsummer Festival, which is coming up very Kicks soon. Off this coming weekend, pretty sure, the 19th. Lots of great events um, as part of Midsummer. Mm. Yeah, some good artists on. We'll go through that a bit later as well. So um, we'll just... Um, Come back in a moment, I think, with our first guest. And uh, I think we don't actually... We have, um, obviously, our regular listeners will know our, our regular program, Over the Wall. Um, we don't have that this week. I think that's... We're going to slot in a bit of an um, alternative news section there. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for a slightly different type of um, show. But we are excited to have you back. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms... Identity politics, intersectionality, turf, or institutional racism. Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. Join us as we learn from experts, academics, writers, activists, and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonization, 
sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender, and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune in to Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am, starting the 8th of January, 855am or via 3cr.org.au. And check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details. Cause you don't know the words Words are hard to remember When they mean nothing at all To the heart who's still waiting For their voice to be heard Don't sing me your anthem When your anthem's absurd Every year 3CR marks Invasion Day with special programming that gives voice to the ongoing struggle for land justice in this country Stood up for justice Stood up for truth our shows cover the real history of Australia, cross to local events and rallies around town and celebrate the survival and culture of Aboriginal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Abolish Australia Day. Tune into 3CR on Saturday, January 26 for coverage of the 2019 Invasion Day events and issues. You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And right now we're joined by Kamari, and she's part of an organisation called DOXA. DOXA is a Victorian not-for-profit organisation that provides programs for disadvantaged young people so they can access positive life experiences, education opportunities and employment pathways. Uh, DOXA's been around since 1972, and what we're talking about today is uh, a summer, um, program, a summer camp and also um, Pathways into University. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us this morning. No worries. Thanks for having me, James. Um, so I guess, yeah, to start with, um, if we could just chat a little bit about um, what DOXA is and the kind of um, work that uh, the organisation does. Sure. So, so we work with young people from disadvantaged com- com- communities. We've been around since 1972. And so for over 40 years we've been running programs for young people to, you know, it, it, we, we initially started in the camp space to take young people out of urban communities um, who were, you know, facing some challenges and t- take them into the, a beautiful setting in the, in the bush and um, pr- provide them with a holiday experience. Since that time, we've grown and we've developed programming uh, that spans uh, all the way from primary through uh, school through to secondary and into tertiary education as well, and really looking at the pathway that young people can take um, through support in terms of staying engaged with education all the way through to whatever they choose to do after school um, into into further tra- training and then employment. And I guess, you know, for a lot of people, that the kind of summer holidays is a, um, you know, a time that's made up of kind of, you know, experiences and moments that you remember for a really long time and something that, you know, people look forward to. But for a lot of the people that, um, you know, perhaps are a part of, uh, some of these programs, it may not be that kind of happy time. And I guess the camp is a way of trying to provide some of those kind of memories and experiences for those people. Absolutely. So we've got um, two groups 
coming in at the moment. They're, they're, they're being engaged from schools all the way throughout Victoria. Basically, um, it, it, it's that exact notion of try, trying to give young people who, who might not be having the best experience o- over the holiday period to, to really go out and enjoy their their time during their break, and and so we've got a you know a, a group of highly skilled um, facilitators up in Malmesbury, which is where our site is, um, who are running. They're doing an all Aussie adventure theme this year, and um, basically they'll be running through activities with our young people that are that's around uh, Australian animal displays. We've got a summer solstice solstice fair happening. Uh, we're doing environmental and bush camp activities, high ropes and swimming, and so the idea is for our, is for our participants to have fun but also build some re- really important skills as well around confidence, team building, working in groups, um, and, and, and we look to, to carry that through into our other programming too. And I see that some of the um, former participants have returned uh, to help out on the camp. I guess, you know, it must mean that they've had a really positive experience and able to kind of share that with other people. That's a really Absolute, great Absolutely, outcome. James. And, yeah, and, and that's what we, we find through all, all of our pro- programming now is that uh, young people have such positive experiences on these camps and in our in our other pro- programs as well that they want to come and give back so that other young people can benefit in the way that they did, and it cre- creates this really beautiful cycle for us where you know the the younger participants coming through have a live example of where they can go in the future, and you know in terms of schooling as well as um, being able to to speak to young, young people that that are a little bit further on in their journey. And what are the kind of things that they might take from that that they can, um, you know, as you say, be a part of their journey long term? Yeah, well, I mean, in a camps area, it's about that positive experience. It's about having, you know, breaking down those barriers that that, that young young people face at school, and you know, building teams and working with people and and building confidence and resilience and that's really sort of the important skills at that stage that we're looking for our young people to take away. I mean I've had I've had um, students coming through our later programs that say oh my gosh I went to Malmesbury and had the best time um, and then they want to also give back by volunteering with the younger students and then when we move into our secondary school programs where we're, we're building skills around employability and also personal development and that helps our young people engage stay engaged with education really is the, is the basis of it all um, in that, that we're, we're, we're taking them into different environments so that they can learn skills build um, networks and be able to practice in a really safe environment and one of the other programs uh, that docs is running is a university pathways program and yes. I think that, you know, some of the skills you're talking about that um, can be learnt perhaps earlier on is something that, um, like you're saying, can be transitioned into something like this, like the University Pathways programs. Absolutely. So we've got two University Pathways programs happening uh, this week and next week. Um, basically, that's a group of Year 12 students who engage with us in where, when they started um, in Year 9. So, so they've returned year upon year and James we, we work again on that, that sort of employability skills framework so we, we start in year nine at a really basic level you know how, how to communicate in teams how to look a person in the eye and shake their hand so we start with that um, and as, as the students progress through the program they come back in year eight nine uh, sorry, sorry year nine ten eleven and twelve we we build on those skills um, we, we take students onto university campuses so you know we've got young people from the country coming in so, so, so they can see, feel, hear what happens on a campus and not feel 
threatened by that. You know, a lot of our young people say that they, they didn't really consider university because they're a little bit scared about leaving their home environment. They didn't know quite what to expect. So this really demystifies that process. Um, we take people into, we take our participants into, you know, the, the, the big office buildings in the city so they can understand what goes on in an office place. They get a chance to speak with staff within that organisation um, to understand the, the pathways that various people take into careers. As we all know, it's not linear in, in many instances. Um, and it also is really building their co- communication skills and ability to, you know, have the confidence to ask questions, speak to adults, find the information that they need that, that's going to put them in the best possible position by the time that they end school to, to arm them with the knowledge that they need to make informed decisions. Yeah, Kamari, it's Jackson here. Um, just wondering, we're hearing a lot at the moment about uh, rising inequality in Australia and elsewhere and education mm-hmm. and uh, careers pathways, vocational training are often held yes. up as kind of uh, mechanisms to, you know, have a, a fence at the top of the cliff rather than ambulance at the bottom of the cliff in that, sure. in that narrative. Is yes. that part of your, your thinking that this is while, while each, while each individual child is also, or young person is helped, uh, it's also mm-hmm. a broader, a broader project to, to draw, um, I guess tackle inequality? Absolutely, Jackson. I mean, you, you've actually hit the nail on the head. It's the ethos behind all of our programs is that, you know, we're, we're really sort of um, levelling the, the playing field for young people who might not have the social networks that others have, that might not have, you know, the, the parents that have gone to university or gone into further training and then be in a job where they can introduce um, the concept and ideas around, you know, this is what happens. So it's it's really about opening the door to an opportunity and providing skills to young people to build those, you know, really important things that a lot of others get because of the support networks they have outside of school mm. um, and outside of the, the, the barriers that they face so that they can arm themselves with everything that they need to actually go through that door and access the opportunity. And, it's, and it is all about, um, you know, really reducing inequality so that, Every young person has the opportunity to, to achieve. I think, you know, like you said before, that one of the things, it's not just about, um, you know, like part of the process of going to university, just filling out the forms and uh, the programming and things like that can be really intimidating for someone who, you know, perhaps their parents didn't go to university or siblings yeah. and things like that. And, and it's, and it's and, you know, for, for even students that, that do have those those connections and people that can help them, I mean, it is still a bit of a confusing process. Mm. So by arming um, young people at a much younger age with the information and knowledge that they need, you know, but by the time they come to year 11, 12, it's not a surprise to them. They've already got it in their mind that, okay, this is the process that I need to go to, through. Or, okay, well, I've been to that university and they're having an open day. I don't, I don't feel worried to go and, and ask questions that, that I'm going to need to make the decisions that, that are really important for my future. So, yeah, it's, it's about really building a young person so, so they're at the stage where they can do, do those things themselves. And I think with both these programs, um, you know, one thing that sounds really great as well is that uh, it's engaging with people over a period of time and, uh, you know, like with the university thing, so engaging from year nine. So it's not just uh, the stress of, of VCE sort of years. It's, um, you know, engaging in that kind of discussion beforehand. Mm. Um, you know, that really helps to kind of build strength all along that kind of pathway to help yeah. that person as well. Absolutely. You know, mental health becomes a really important um, issue across all of these stages of, of life. But, um, 
you know, our young people come in and it really helps to, to, to reduce their stress around around year 12 and VCE because they, they think they see what, what it is and, and they understand that there are various pathways. It's not just a, you know, an ATAR and that's it. Um, mm. So, so, so that, that also is another part of our, our thinking around uh, engaging students at an early stage. Um, but, but it's also about that support. I mean, a lot of our young, young people talk about they've, they're finally in a community of people that you know are going through things that they're going through that they can speak to, that they can um, interact with and, and find information from or go to things together. So, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really about creating a support network, a community for our young people so that they are able to ask questions beyond the school setting. And are there ways that, um, you know, people are still able to get involved in these um, programs at the moment or, um, yeah. you know, how people can support the programs as well? Sure. So we work with schools um, at, you know, over secondary uh, level by, we, we, we look at something called the ICSIA ranking, so that's Index of Community Socio-Educational Advantage. Um, 1,000 is the average and we work with schools under that average. So if there is a teacher listening or a young person listening, um, please, I, what I encourage you to do is, is jump on the DOXA website, uh, www.doxa.org.au. Have a look at our different programming at various levels and, and, and give the office a call and we'd be more than happy to, to talk through how a school or a young person might be able to engage. Um, as far as, as far as, um, beyond university pathways program, we've got a program called the Ketchup Program. And last year we had a group of year 12 students, um, go finish our university pathways program and start engaging in the cadetship program, which supports young people that are entering university. We provide them with a work placement and also, um, professional development skills. And I'd ask anyone, anyone who's hit on their way to work at the moment, thinking that you know they they really like to support a young person, also to, to get get on the website, have a look, um, and give our organisation a call because we would love to work with with um, any organisation that would love to support young people uh, into you know into careers. Well, yeah, I I um I support those those sentiments as well. It's a really um, great program, both programs, and um, well, we've actually run out of time this morning, but no, um, really appreciate coming on and having a chat about those things, and um, you know, it'd be great to chat again. Yes, absolutely. Thank thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Bye bye. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Now we're joined uh, over the phone uh, by Cork Edwards, who's a Rudgery woman from central New South Wales, uh, who's recently come down to Melbourne. Um, she's been a lifelong activist uh, working in the environmental space and also Indigenous activism, and she's joining us on the phone to chat about some of the approaches to activism that we saw here in Melbourne uh, in the lead-up to the Stop Nazis protest uh, along St Kilda Beach uh, the Saturday before the last one. Uh, good morning, Cork. Thanks heaps for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Look, um, you've been pretty vocal on Facebook about the behaviour of a group called the Smashed Avocado Movement in the lead-up to yeah. the Stop Nazis protest. Can you kind of just uh, give our listeners a rundown of their actions over the lead-up and afterwards and why you think they're problematic? Okay, I'll do my best. Um, so after the, um, well, an unnamed a current affairs program 
uh, aired their what I'd consider propaganda against the African communities in Melbourne. Mm. Um, and Neil Erickson decided to do a stunt and go down to St Kilda Beach and film some children playing soccer on the beach who happened to be uh, of Sudanese descent um, and provocating, the, uh, provocate, uh, sorry, provocating them into uh, fighting back against them. Yeah, the police showed up. Did he say something like Cronulla 2.0 or something like that he wanted to start? That was after that stunt. Mm -hmm. So he was filming them. He um, was antagonising them in their face, refused to stop filming when they asked. Uh, The police came and the police ended up actually arresting one of the Sudanese boys after pepper spraying him directly in the face. And Mm -hmm. he was laying on the ground vomiting and they were putting him in handcuffs because he was defending himself against um, this violent... um, antagonism from this group of men. Mm. And uh, afterwards, um, they started saying they were going to do uh, Romper Stomper 2, um, Cronulla Riot 2.0. They started spreading events on Facebook, um, telling other extreme white-wing, racist, Nazi, nationalist, whatever they like to call themselves people, to come down to the beach the next Saturday for a nationalism rally. I'm not sure. Mm. They, they like to spin the language so that they don't actually admit what it is that they're doing, but it was basically a rally against black people being allowed to exist in Melbourne. Um, they want to send them back or lock them up or... I'm, I'm, I don't even know what their end goal is. I'm pretty sure that sending them back where they came from, which is a horrific thing to say, yeah. um, is, their, is their kind of end goal. But they also really enjoy limelight and getting more followers and having more power over larger communities. And so it was also a publicity stunt for them. Yeah. So they're planning that. And they announced that Sunday, Monday. Mm-hmm. They started spreading it around. And so a lot of the other, uh, the other spe- side of the spectrum, um, the activists, activists, leftists, anti-fascists, movements started scrambling to coordinate a counter-protest against them because silence is compliance and we can't just allow these horrific people to demonstrate this sort of behaviour without showing a show of force that says this behaviour isn't okay. So they all start Monday Mm -hmm. to organise these things and that's where the Smashed Avocado movement comes in. Mm -hmm. They created a solidarity picnic event. Mm -hmm where they wanted to have music and food and um, and show support for the marginalised communities that were being targeted. But they were choosing to do it on the day when actual Nazis were going to be there. Mm. And so they created this event and they had a lot of people on their comms team, on their moderator team for Facebook and for Twitter that weren't communicating very well with everybody, but there were a few major players who made most of the decisions. And with the other activist teams who were scrambling to coordinate everything, make sure everyone was safe, to liaise with police because police had, by Thursday, flat out said any unauthorised groups that haven't liaised with police on Saturday, before Saturday were going to be taken off the beach, arrested, mm. taken off, taken away, 
harangued. And the smashed avocado team were refusing to liaise with police at that point. Mm. A lot of them are anarchists and they refused to converse with authority. Um, they didn't feel that they needed to. It was just a picnic. Um, but one of the heads convinced them eventually that it was the only way to keep everybody safe. And if the safety of their attendees was their priority, then they needed to do this step. I it's do, I do wonder protocol. about the safety of their attendees as well because they did openly invite members of the South Sudanese community to come down and join them in a picnic when, as you say, Neil Erickson and Bluebeard and others on the you know fascist right wing had openly said they were looking for confrontation with that group of people. So it's an interesting approach to invite targeted people into the space where there's quite, quite probably going to be violence directed towards them. And especially with prominent members of the Sudanese community putting out posts mm. and videos pleading with their own community to go nowhere near it. That's right. Because it, it was the absolute last place that was safe for that community on that day. Mm. And so, you know, a solidarity picnic is a lovely idea. Mm. It really is. But not when you're facing off with what was promised to be hundreds of incredibly vile, violent people. Mm. There were people on the events page saying they were going to bring weapons and bats mm. and cricket bats and that they were going to, you know, tear people's heads off. Romper Stomper 2 just immediately in my mind invokes, you know, stomping people's heads in. Mm. It's horrific. And so to have a solidarity picnic for people that can't even be there and they knew that they weren't going to be there, they knew they couldn't be there for their own safety. Mm. It just screams performative. The whole thing. And it would have been lovely if they had it yesterday mm. when it was a nice day and there was no Nazis and they could have actually engaged with the community and had them there and showed their support and had a lovely day. Mm. But a, a picnic isn't exactly the best counter-protest towards violent Nazis. Yeah. It's just not. And we've had, um, you know, uh, protests organised by CAF and other groups, you know, Campaign Against Racism and, and, and Fascism for many years now, opposing yeah. uh, these right-wing uh, fascists uh, when they choose to rally. Uh, there was a very interesting kind of anonymous post put up by the smashed avocado movement under a pseudonym saying that if, my understanding is it said, if any uh, leftists behaved in um, antagonistic uh, manner, they would be recording them and then reporting them to the police. Yes, which is incredibly interesting, especially after refusing to liaise with the police because they don't like authority. Um, I actually have the tweet written down in front of me because it was deleted the, after the afternoon of the protest by somebody who was on the team and had no idea that it was posted and was appalled that it was posted. And they deleted that post and posted an apology, which somebody else on the team then deleted and wrote a post retracting the apology and saying they weren't sorry for anything. So for people that um, haven't seen the post, haven't heard about the tweet, this is somebody that's associated with the Smashed Avocado movement but wasn't actually part of the team. And she posted it on Twitter to her 10,000 followers, got hundreds of likes. So lots of people co-signing this idea that they were going to do this. Mm. And then the Smashed Avocado posted it to their 11,000 followers and got much more hundreds of likes. And these are people that a lot of them would have been attending. And so they're spreading this message of do it our way or you will be doxxed to the police.
and a lot of a lot of people in the movement are working class people, a lot of people of colour, and so threatening people of colour with the police when they have such a violent history of just being destroyed by the police, being taken down violently, mm. being kept in cells for days and days waiting for a magistrate, etc. Mm. So the tweet the tweet reads. Also a message for others attending the Solidarity Gathering. If I see any lefties engaging in baiting, antagonistic behaviour or provocation, I will be the first to take your picture and report you to the police. This is a peaceful gathering of solidarity. Make it so. Mm. And so he doesn't even mention violence. The Post itself did in a vague way and said, we'll only not do this if you're just defending yourself with reasonable force. Mm. It was worded quite bizarrely and so they mentioned violence but the tweet that they were co-signing that they posted doesn't mm. it just mentions antagonistic baiting it, provocative it, behavior it really and so that you know, it's referencing an interesting debate, you know, amongst the left. You know, how do you respond to people who say, you know, you can't fight hatred with hatred, you know, coming coming from a standpoint where, you know, you, you know there's going to be confrontation, it's not going to be, you know, people use phrases like counterproductive, you know. You know, some people are quite um, turned off and don't want to be involved in any protests that are going to involve what they see as violence or antagonism. How do you respond to that? What what role do you think direct confrontation plays in successful activism? Well, it's it's like the phrase that I've heard a million times, you can't fight fire with fire, which is actually incorrect. The, you know, rural firefighting people all over the country fight fire literally with fire. That's how they fight it. And these extreme right-wing nationalist Nazi people their ideology is violent. There is no ifs, ands or buts about it. What they believe is violent. Blair Cottrell, who was there, has tweeted multiple times about his desire to get enough power to be able to commit genocide. These are people who just are violent in nature. Their ideology is violent. And there's no way that you can say please and thank you and that's not very nice in the face of violence. The only way to... Stamp it out is to stamp it out. You have to physically intervene and stop these people from being allowed to spread violent, fatal ideology. It's, there's, there's no other way to do it. No other way works. We've never, ever gotten a single right, not the right for my people, Aboriginal people to vote, not women's right to vote, not, you know, stopping any of these horrific things from happening all over the world. None of it was done by asking nicely. We've always had to put our bodies on the line. We've always had to stand up physically to these sorts of ideas. And people just seem to forget that. It's easier for them to just say, well, you're just as bad as them. But they're not the ones actually doing it. They're not doing anything. They're actually helping the other side by spreading this message that, and by mirroring this message that we're just as bad. When we're standing up, for ourselves, for people who don't have the power in this society to stand up for themselves, mm -hmm. we're putting ourselves in danger for the right thing, for the moral thing, for the thing that we're going to look back on in 50 years and go, that was really awful and I'm glad those people were there to stand up and stop it. And I think that it's really important that uh, people who are going to take names and photos and um, hand over information to the police are just as dangerous and um, 
destructive destructive to movement as well. And I think that um, while many people may not agree, I don't think those people should be welcomed at any uh, protest events, protests, or you know no. any events that we organise on the left. And uh, I, no, we can't. We can't trust them. Exactly. Now. Yeah, we're not safe from them or the other side. They've completely lost that trust that they built. I just wanted to um, as well move on to something that I think is makes uh, all these kind of events with the Nazis and the far right um, even more disturbing, and that's where Senator Fraser Anning, um, his attendance, you know, paid for by the taxpayer, for him mm. to attend events like this. And you know, we know that there's a lot of you know, Pauline Hansons and these politicians around Australia. But, um, you know, the, his speech in Parliament, which we um, spoke about on the show last year, and the kind of um, camaraderie that he seemed to have with Blair and others at the protest is, um, you know, pretty sickening. And I think that it really shows that people need to take um, these actions by um, these Nazis seriously. And that the kind of um, thing that you just said then about looking back and reflecting on what kind of actions we take to stop not just these people on the streets, but also those people that have taken positions of power in society is really, really important. They are. They're gaining power and gaining support in Parliament is... It, it's frightening because these aren't attitudes that we should tolerate at all and now they're being boosted with high-profile people, people like Anning Anning, who got in on 19 votes and now has tens of thousands of people supporting him because of what he did. And that's just a reflection of the horrific swing, the pendulum swing that this country has done. You know, every time we make a little bit of progress to the left, every time we progress slightly, we start being more compassionate, we start caring about more people, the further the pendulum swings the other way and people are resisting that change to the point where they're willing to support someone who happily stands next to people with SS helmets and doing the Heil Fried right next to him. People are co-signing that now because they're, they're so terrified of change and the pendulum is going to continue to swing further right until we take it back. And that's what the activism is all about and that's why the gentrification of this counter-protest by the Smashed Avocado movement is needs to be called out, and it has been called out by almost all of the activist communities in Melbourne mm. and across the country and even the world um, because we have to hold our own as accountable as we do other people. And if we're not willing to call them out for their problematic behaviour, for their dangerous and violent behaviour of threatening people of colour and poor working-class people with the police just for attending and not following their rules at a picnic against Nazis. We're no better. We're, we're, we, we can't look ourselves in the mirror and know we're doing the right thing if we refuse to call them out. And yes, they're calling us ultra-left and, you know, gloating on their personal profiles about how they've, you know, pissed off the fascists and the anti-fascists and all of this kind of centric, ridiculous thing. Mm. And we have to be able to call that out. We have to be able to say, no, this behaviour isn't OK. We need to hold ourselves to a better standard because the other side doesn't. They don't have rules. They don't have a standard they have to keep to. They can be as disgusting and backstabby and vile as they want to be and it fits with their ideology, but not for us. We have a standard we have to keep and we there's an unwritten code of activism where everybody that's attending on that side has each other's back. We keep each other safe. 
we stand up for each other. And we can't do that if there's a whole group of people that are willing to throw us under the bus for not following their rules. When oh. their rules yeah, well, are this... ridiculous in the first place. Yeah. We're talking to Cork Edwards at the moment, a Rudgery woman uh, who's talking about approaches to activism after the Stop Nazis uh, rally uh, in St Kilda last Saturday. Cork, um, I understand that this evening in Edinburgh Gardens, the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance are organising a bit of a meeting to talk to uh, settler colonial allies about how to uh, get involved in Invasion Day protests at the end of this month. Now, I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of, of war, but to your mind, you know, this is one feature of this smashed avocado movement as well. There's been a lot of accusations of kind of, you know, uh, mainstream elitism and being a bit out of touch with the struggles of people of colour, Indigenous people. Uh, what do you think are good ways for white allies uh, to, to be involved in the struggles of people of colour? They first need to recognise the privilege that they have in the society where, you know, Aboriginal people in where I used to live near Sydney... Aboriginal people were 24 times more likely to be locked up by the police for the same crime as a non-Aboriginal person. Uh, in WA, it's 41 times more likely. Um, we need you to recognise your privilege in society, the fact that they're not going to violently arrest you as bad as they will us. You need to recognise the fact that they're more willing to negotiate with white people than they are with us. If you recognise the privilege that you have, you're able to see the privileges other people don't. And that's the entire point of recognising your own privilege. I know it's a catch call on the internet now, oh, check your privilege, which has taken away the meaningfulness of the phrase. But it's really important to do so. And using your privilege in situations like we've seen before on prior Invasion Day marches, the police, you know, violently taking protesters down uh, dragging people off, pepper-spraying people in the face so closely that they have permanent eye damage. These mostly are Aboriginal activists, and we need allies to be able to stand behind us, in front of us, next to us, help keep us safe. You need to use your privilege and your body to help keep us safe. If you are there for us, you need to be there for us. It's not it's not an opportunity to take pictures for Instagram. It's not earning you a seat at the cookout. You need to do the work. And it's scary and it is dangerous. But if we matter, if our lives matter, 400 people since the Royal Commission, 400 Aboriginal people have died in custody since the Royal Commission in 1991. 187 in the last nine years. We need people to protect us physically in these situations. And we honestly, as much as it pains me to say, we can't do this without allies. We need people to listen and to care and to stand up and to stand in to help us. And that's the best way people can. People listen to white people more than they do us. So be vocal online. Be vocal with your family. Be vocal with your friends. People will listen to you. They're not listening to us. There's a massive swing back of the majority of Australia that is digging their heels in and refusing to listen. The government's doing it now. It's We need more allies to stand up and to speak, to echo what we're saying. We don't want you to speak for us. We don't want you to speak over us. Echo what, our message. 
and stand in where you can. That's what we need. Well, Cork, it's been really good talking this morning. Thanks for taking the time. We've got to leave it there. You're welcome. Um, see you on the streets. No worries, mate. See you there. So that was Cork Edwards, a Rudgery woman and lifelong activist, uh, talking about uh, good uh, allyship, I suppose, uh, in the fight against oppression. And I guess one of the ways um, people can uh, support Aboriginal resistance, Aboriginal people, uh, is for the Invasion Day protests coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. So uh, no matter where you're listening, I'm sure there's an Invasion Day um, protest and events that are happening near you, so you should definitely check that out. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. We're going to go into a a bit of a quick um, alternative news now. So, um, yeah. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby. There's a couple of bigger issues that I'm going to touch on, but um, just to start things off, there was something that caught my attention uh, yesterday, actually. I think it's in over the weekend's paper. And this is around the um, increased legislation around um, people being able to use their phones at all um, in their car. So that includes, um, you know, if you are stopped at lights or anything like that, you're not allowed to touch your phone unless the ignition is off, um, which I, I, a lot of people um, feel quite strongly about this, but I think it's quite ridiculous, really. Nobody should be checking their phone to look at Facebook or things like that, but there is apps, if anyone thinks there's any difference in changing the song on their phone to on the radio, I, I don't think there is. So it's a difficult thing, I guess, to make laws around. It's also going to have a pretty major impact on people who rely on telephones in their work inside cars. Yeah, so this article is about Uber drivers. And um, so in this article, um, it's on the Sydney Morning Herald age um, websites. Uh, It says actually Uber drivers have 15 seconds um, to respond to uh, a new job that comes in, which is obviously... um, you know, a not very uh, long amount of time. And it, it can be very difficult for a driver to find a safe spot to pull over, turn the ignition off and accept a call, uh, accept a job, sorry, within 15 seconds. So, um, and you know, we touched on um, Uber drivers and um, the rideshare um, co-op uh, last year. We had some stories with that. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's a developing workers issue about some of these um, kind of industries and how these kind of, uh, new laws may affect people that are, you know, it's part of their workplace, uh, their car. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that, uh, I guess, plays out because if those people are already um, paid quite poorly, if they're going to be fined for essentially doing their job or, you know, Uber's going to have to create a, a longer time in which they can try to accept a job or not, I guess. Mm. Or a hands-free voice-operated app or something like that. Mm. They're going to have to change to suit the law. We all know they've been so good at accommodating the needs of their workers so far in their short history. 
I was I was attempting sarcasm there. Sometimes it doesn't come across, but I'm being sarcastic. Well, uh, another thing, um, let's touch on a bit of US politics. And obviously, I think most listeners would know about the uh, kind of shutdown that's uh, been going on now, I think, into its almost into its fourth week. Uh, which Hundreds means that, of thousands of people not yeah, being paid over the Christmas period. It is I think it's around 850,000 people um, who work for the government in you know various ways, uh, park ranger, you know, through all types of kind of jobs, not just government bureaucrats. And mm. uh, you know, uh, yeah, as you say, uh, being without a job. Um, but before we get into, I wanted to touch on something that is very related, and that's um, 2020 is going to be, it seems like a long way away, but it certainly is not. And that's when the uh, US election is going to be. Um, and I think, you know, we'll be very keen to kind of uh, keep a close eye on that. Um, I'm hoping to uh, get over to the US um, to see that election, if I can. Um and one, over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've seen two candidates. Uh, yesterday, Julian Castro, who was uh, a part of um, Barack Obama's, um, I think he was a housing minister or something. Uh, he was a part of um, Obama's administration anyway. And he's put his uh, hat in the ring, as they say, to um, run for the Democrats. And if elected, he would be the first Hispanic U.S. president. The first Castro in the White House. Hmm. Um, and Elizabeth Warren also a few weeks ago, um, you know, announced her candidacy. So it's interesting, you know, this is kind of happening on the backdrop. And I think that Castro, especially, um, you know, being, um, of, you know, Mexican, um, descent and, you know, with the kind of, um, rhetoric of Donald Trump talking about, you know, building this, um, monstrosity of a wall, um, to keep out, um, Mexican people from, you know, yeah. part of the country which is actually um, historically Mexican, Mexico anyway. Yeah, it was truly disturbing hearing the Donald uh, in his uh, recent uh, address to the nation regarding the need to build the wall that he again fell back on these statements, essentially saying that this wall will stop thousands of Americans being murdered by migrants, will stop thousands of Americans becoming addicted to the drugs that are pouring across the borders. Just blatant lies that are targeting, mm. uh, scapegoating these uh, these communities. Uh, there have been children dying in US detention centres, uh, which is disgusting, as it is here in Australia. Um, and you know, honestly, for all of the uh, hyper hyperbole and hysteria at times from the media about Donald Trump, the ABC described his tone as conciliatory when talking about the need to build this this wall. Um, it's just just the creep of this vile, violent, scapegoating language, you know, which is exactly something that Cork Edwards was talking about earlier into these corridors of power. It's not just in Australia, obviously in the US. We're seeing a lot of it in France as well. And, um, yeah, it's, it's disturbing. And I guess, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I guess, is the midterm elections and, you know, what is the kind of inner uh, current political system in the way in which um, politics operates today. What is the real point of the midterm elections? Because on the one hand, um, you know, every time there's a kind of figure like, you know, I think I'm pretty sure Trump, Obama, Bush, all at certain periods in their presidency, they had midterm elections in which the other side won a majority of seats or enough in which to to block, um, you know, things like this. So 
obviously in no way we support um you know the wall and um things that Trump's doing but also on the other hand you know what is happening with the kind of democracy here where you know one side can just hold up um on political point that obviously is going to affect a lot of people but is already affecting you know over 800,000 people because they can't come to an agreement on on a political issue that's completely unrelated it means that um you know these people's lives and as you said they're kind of Christmas period would be uh, very traumatic. And, mm. um, you know, a lot of these people are quite low-paid um, government workers who are going without because the government, uh, you know, both sides, the Democrats and Republicans, are fighting over political issues. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly not governing in the interests of the people. No, I'm, I, and, I, and I think it's a bit, yeah, this trying to assign blame for the, the impasse that they're at at the moment, you know, I do think it's a bit of a case of, of Trump throwing, you know, he also promised that Mexico would pay for this wall, you know, it's mm. incredibly expensive, draconian, mad idea, you know, that doesn't have the support, you know, he's got to work within the systems that, but it, this, this seems to be the issue is that he, he is unreachable. He seems to have deaf ears to the to the pleas of of, of these eight hundred thousand working people to restart up the government, and it's not just the people's jobs; it's also the running of this huge nation of three hundred million people. Like mm. there is probably essential services that are going undone, um, but will have impacts for for a long time after they started up going again. Think about the backlog of work. Yeah, well, it's an interesting situation to monitor. One thing that they are able to do is that Donald Trump is able to, as president, call a state of emergency, and that's why some of the rhetoric I think that he's using, using is that kind of funds, yeah. alarmist kind of um, thing. And you know, we saw during Obama's presidency, he used presidential decree to get past a lot of these um, stalemates that happened during the after midterm elections by using a presidential decree to override that kind of democratic system. Yeah, on that note, I just saw the film Vice over the holidays about Dick Cheney and the work that he put in from a very early time to grant the president these unitary powers, to grant the president a a legal position outside of the general law where the, the president can do uh, no crime and rule essentially by imperial decree. It's a, it's a, it's a fairly unbalanced film in a way. It feels a bit cheery at times, a bit like, uh, a bit uh, cheerleadery for this kind of, uh, power-hungry behaviour, a bit like the Big Short did about the cleverness of the white men that ripped off everyone during the global financial crisis. Same director and writer, but still a lot of interesting ideas in the film. And just one really quick thing before we get to our next interview. We spoke a lot last year about Sorry to Bother You that had a short run at the at the Nova. It's on again at the Thornbury Picture House, which is mm-hmm. a newly launched uh, cinema, a uh, small cinema in Thornbury. It's on this week. I really implore listeners, if you're listening, to go and see that film by Boots Riley. It's a great Great film. It's still been running at Nova. It got an extended run as well. Oh, I didn't realise that. Cool. Um, so we'll just play a short announcement and uh, then we'll be back with our next interview. Don't sing me an anthem Cos you don't know the words Words are hard to remember When they mean nothing at all To the hearts are still waiting For their voice to be heard Don't sing me your anthem when your anthem's absurd. Every year, 3CR marks Invasion Day with special programming that gives voice to the ongoing struggle for land justice in this country. Stood up for justice, stood up for truth, stood up for Indigenous... Our shows cover the real history of Australia, cross to local events and rallies around town and celebrate the survival and culture of Aboriginal people. One last time before we move up. 
Always was. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Abolish Australia Day. Tune into 3CR on Saturday, January 26 for coverage of the 2019 Invasion Day events and issues. You tuned in to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM on your radio dial. Maybe you're listening in the future on a podcast that you downloaded from 3cr.org.au. The time is 7 past 8, and we're about to be joined on the phone by Dee Phillips, who's a Bundrung woman from the Tweed Heads region up in northern New South Wales. And she's the founder and admin of Blackfella Revolution, a great Facebook page that's worth checking out. And she's joined us to talk about a few issues that have come up in Indigenous affairs over the last few days. Dee, thanks heaps for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, look, I, I've been following your page for quite a while. It's a great source of news and a great source of comedy at times as well, uh, looking <laughs> yeah. at looking at these issues online. Uh, I just was wondering what your take was on uh, Scott Morrison's pretty uh, draconian approach to Invasion Day and forcing councils across the country to celebrate citizenship ceremonies. What do you think about that? Uh, okay, well, here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> I've always thought that... Uh, State Council, City Councils had the right to um, celebrate, or not celebrate, but help hold their, um, uh, um, what is it called? Um, the Citizenship. Citizenship, sorry, I do mm. apologise. Right. Ceremonies on any date. When you are um, put in for citizenship, you get to choose, right, what date. They give you a, 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 a list of dates that you can choose. So... Um, <clears throat> I don't quite understand it because you can pick a date, but he's saying that you have to hold it on the 26th. But then if you're not going to hold it on the 26th, he's saying that you can't have them at all. So I, I'm a bit confused about how how he's going to police that or, or how that's going to be, you know, policed. It's quite a confusing issue, really, isn't it? Because... Yeah, I, I don't, I don't quite understand it, really. What, um, what do you think it means, as well, from like a, a culture wars perspective, which which is what it kind of feels like? Like, why do you think people like Scott Morrison and his political ilk are so desperate to defend this day that only really started in 1994 or something ludicrous, you know, on this particular date? What is this? What's the representation of this date? What's the undercurrents that you see here? Well, here's the thing. The 26th, we know what it is. We know that what happened on the 26th of January in 1788, we know that they, that they came ashore, that they, they put the, um, the uh, flag in the ground and they claimed the land and all of that sort of stuff. And we know what kicked off after that. So <clears throat> when you have uh, a, a government um, say that, we have to have it on that particular date. It, it makes you go, well, what's so special about that particular date that you have to have it then, right? It, mm. it makes you wonder, what's so special about it? Well, what's special about it to them is that that's the date that they invaded and, and kicked off all the atrocities that, that um, allowed them to 
steal and rape and murder and all, all of those horrible atrocities that they did. So it, it, it sort of makes you think, if you have to have it on that date, what is it specifically about that date that you're celebrating? And the only thing that you can think of that that, that date represents is invasion. So therefore, we're saying to you, if you're going to celebrate on that date, you're celebrating invasion, there's nothing else that that I can think of or anyone else that, that stands with us can think of why you're celebrating on that date or why you have to have it on that date. And what proves this is that in, what was it, 1988, they had um, bicentennial, the bicentennial, yeah. right? And you have all of that big celebration of the ships and and the reenactment and all of that sort of stuff. And, and that just says to me, well, that's what you're celebrating, mm. right? And I don't want to celebrate that. I don't want to celebrate that. I don't want to celebrate it on that day. And that day is, it means something different to a lot of people in this country. So when you have Scott Morrison who says, that's the date that, it, that Australia Day is on and it's always been on, which it hasn't. Um, it's always been on that date and that's the date we're going to have it and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. Well, we're going to stand up and say, well, there is something we can do about it. Um, we're not going to celebrate it. We're going to get out as we have done for 80 years and we're going to show you why we don't want to celebrate it on that day. Mm-hmm. So... <clears throat> I think, you know, like John Howard before him, that these kind of uh, statements and things that Scott Morrison is saying is no accident. I think that, like you said before, he, you know, perhaps is not quite comfortable enough to say it just yet, but he wants to celebrate the fact that, you know, those ships sailed into Australia and took over this country. I don't think it's not an accident. He wants to celebrate that day, and he's he's proud of that kind of white... Um, nationalism, colonialization of this country. And I think, you know, it's a lot of the media outlets are skirting around these kind of issues of, oh, it's, it's about tradition and whatever. But, you know, th- these politicians are racist and they, they support these kind of things and they support the colonialization of not just in the past, but today as well. Yeah, I mean, I have, a, I have trouble using the word racist. Um, I find that it is used uh, um, overly for things that just aren't racist. Sometimes things are just about ignorance. Um, sometimes it's just about people who don't understand history, um, which matters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and sometimes all it takes is for someone to sit down and listen and learn, and and you'll find that their views tend to shift. But with people like Scott Morrison and Senator Anning and Pauline Hanson, mm. they they are so fixated on um, on their beliefs and their worldviews that they won't hear anything about uh, history and how history has played a part in uh, in our views and the things that we do and the things that we stand against and things like that. So um, <clears throat> I find that uh, with those kind of people, it's really really hard to shift their views, right? Because they're so fixated on 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 their world views, it's really difficult to 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 
sit down with them and, and discuss these sorts of things because it, they just won't move on them. And it's yeah. really quite frustrating, right? So <clears throat> um, I don't know if I'm, if I'm still on track here. But, <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. It's, it's been disappointing in the aftermath of, yeah, Annie attending that you know, blatantly uh, oh anti-immigration goodness. rally down in, in Melbourne and they put up a po- Channel 9 put up a post up on the Gold Coast asking whether he should be disbarred from the Senate and it seemed like, unfortunately, a whole lot of people said that not only should he be disbarred, he should be promoted. I mean, yeah. you know, you've been working in this space for a long time, Dee. How do you um, deal with those kind of revelations? I understand that an online environment, as you would know, can be very um, myopic and one-sided, but... You know, it must be tiring sometimes when you just see that kind of um, vitriol pour forth from people. Do you think they're doing it in jest half the time or do you think it's, it's coming from a really serious part of the Australian psyche? Oh, no, I think it's serious. I think it's serious. It's not a joking matter at all. Uh, the problem with those online posts, uh, online um, polls is that um, when they go up, uh, the people who, who um, vote on them tend to be... Uh, people who follow that particular space and um, you know so you're going to have it shift towards what that space believes in right or what that space's views are so for you know for example if I put up a pose a, a poll um, you'll find that um, it'll, it will it will shift to what my pages views are right because you have most of my followers who will vote on it and and then when when the poll Goes to another space, it, you don't really have enough time to um, to to shift those numbers, right? So I try to get those polls and post them and try and get my followers to to shift it so it, <laughs> so you can get a more um, a more balanced can, yeah, yeah you can get a more balance on what society really really thinks and really feels about those things, but it, it's quite frustrating. Um, when you see those polls so so blown out, I mean, mm. you're talking about you know, eighties in the eighties and ninety percent to to you know under ten percent for one particular view, and you think to yourself, geez, it can't be right. It, it can't. It, yeah, you, you can't be like that. Mm. You, you have a look at uh, Invasion Day rallies, right? I mean, you have a look at the people that get out and mm. support the change of date, and then you have a, a change to date poll, and you think, well, that doesn't match what I see. Yeah, I saw that this morning, that it was looking <laughs> at eighty twenty. Hey, Dee, look, yeah. um, we've run out of time. It's great to talk to you this morning. I love the page. I implore all of our great. listeners to follow it online, Blackfella Revolution, fella spelt F-U-L-L-A. Mm. Um, thanks heaps for joining us. Keep up the good work, and we'll, uh, we'll see you, you in the future. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thanks, Dee. That was Dee Phillips, who's the, uh, I guess, the editor and the editor in chief and admin of the Blackfellow Revolution page. It's a great page online, and uh, we're lucky now to be joined in the studio by another guest uh, to change tack a little. Uh, we're joined by Tony from Minus Eighteen. He's the uh, CEO of Minus Eighteen, general manager. My mistake. <laughs> um, and just talking a little bit about the program that's coming up uh, with Minus Eighteen at Midsummer, uh, which kicks off next weekend and runs for a few days. Um, yeah, what are you doing at the at the Midsummer Festival this year with Minus 18? Well, thanks for having me, Jackson and uh, James. Uh, 
this year, uh, Minus 18 is, uh, Minus 18 is really famous for creating events and, uh, producing, um, um, experiences and safe spaces for young LGBTIQ people. Uh, and so Midsummer, uh, in their infinite wisdom has enabled, uh, a, a, a space in Midsummer Carnival, which is on Sunday, uh, January 20th, um, that, uh, is a space specifically for young LGBTIQ people to, um, um, mingle with other LGBTIQ youth. Um, uh, people of the same age, uh, people of the same sort of um, um, uh, considerations and same sort of um, um, uh, um, uh, interests. Um, and we're integrating in the space where we have DJs, we have um, uh, glitter stations, we have uh, all the fun things that you, you could, might expect from a, a youth-orientated event um, centred within the summer itself. So um, that's, uh, that's been a, a really fantastic um, um, uh, arrangement for us. Yeah, you are one of the more visible uh, LGBTI uh, activist groups mm. uh, targeting young people. I work in the schools sector and we see a lot of your material. It's been really positive over the last few years. Mm. Obviously, you put on these events, but I wonder what your focus is over the coming year. It's been a really big kind of 12, 18 months mm. for the LGBTIQ plus community mm. with same-sex marriage going through. But when you're talking with, I'm sure you meet a lot of young people in your role, what are they concerned about for coming up in 2019, 2020? What are your focuses for the mm, next 12 mm. months? Um, I think uh, what we've noticed with a lot of young people is uh, there's a um, uh, an undercurrent around representation um, and representation across uh, multiple uh, um, uh, inter- interfaith um, rela- um, um, orientations mm. as well as um, people who are uh, non-gender conforming uh, as well as people of different uh, cultural and linguistically diverse uh, backgrounds as well. So we're wanting to we're, we're seeing a lot more of a desire for greater and fairer representation across um, intersectional communities. And is that something you've brought to your role at Midsummer? Like how do you engage with, for example, yeah, young gay kids from um, yeah, different language-speaking backgrounds, different religious backgrounds? Mm. Is that something you've been thinking about in planning this event? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh um, cultural and linguistically diverse um, people are something that we've always focused on. Uh, we have what's known as a QDPOC space. QDPOC has an acronym for Queer and Trans Indigenous People of Colour. Um, we have a QDPOC space for most of our events, and that QDPOC space is specifically designed to celebrate um, cultural and linguistically diverse um, cultures um, to enable, uh, I guess, young people to feel a little more comfortable and integrated into, into communities that tend to be quite, um, dare I say, white. Um, in in these um, representations of, of uh, uh, LGBTIQ communities, that's maybe quite wide, mm-hmm. uh, and as a result of that, we're trying to address that balance by um, deliberately recruiting performers of uh, QDPOC backgrounds um, and creating these spaces as well to enable a little bit more of that integration, a little bit more of that celebration. I think one of the great things, like Midsummer, is you know it kind of starts and ends with a party, but in between, there's um, you know not to discount the excitement of both those things as well, but um, you know, there's so many great shows that tell stories that are really important. Mm. And, you know, they're from, like you said, a, a, a diversity of communities and and stories that, um, you know, are really, really as important now as you know, I think they've ever been throughout Midsummer's kind of history. And I think it, it's a really, I think sometimes it can be for young people trying to engage in that space, it can be quite an intimidating sort of space as well. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, performers that are, um, you know, been doing the show for a long time and, and, you know, a lot of confidence on stage and everything that can be a difficult space to engage in. Mm. And it, I think, you know, this program is something that can introduce people in a really, um, 
you know, supportive environment as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's the, the value of Minus 18 is that we're creating these safe spaces that are uh, appropriate for, for the age groups that we're representing as well. So, um, you know, hookup culture is such a huge component of the queer community. Um, and we're encouraging uh, an environment of celebration rather than focusing on those types of aspects of, of the queer community. Mm. Mm. It's interesting to be promoting those spaces amongst young people, like not just, you know, thinking about schools and the approach that they might have towards hooking up or sex at young ages, you know, like it, of course, you know, from my perspective, it's about education and Mm. empowerment, giving people the tools to navigate what are complicated early relationships in your life. Um, You know, what's your position on that? Like how we begin to get young people to be engaged in, you know, the possibility of relationships and how to navigate that? What what do you think is the right way to go about that? Yeah, I think it's about breaking down some of the stigmas associated with that as well. I mean, uh, young people are young people. They're going to do young people things and that's the expectation. I I like the euphemism. Yeah. Um, but um, one of the things that we're always um, um, encouraging in, in the events and types of uh, experiences that we offer is that we always invite youth workers along to, to those events as well. Um, we call it sneaky support, so to speak. <laughs> so a lot of the time, a lot of the time, um, these young people are, are not necessarily going to engage in really complex um, emotional issues or things that might be happening at home, for instance. So when provide when we provide these safe spaces for people and they come to sort of realise that you know this is a place for me to be able to sort of express myself in the way that I want to, um, then that naturally opens up avenues for them to have conversations with um, with people that might be able to help them navigate some of those um, more complex and challenging issues. Mm. I think, you know, one of the issues around um, festivals that we've seen, particularly mm. over the last few months, is pill testing. And, mm. um, you know, I think that the um, drug culture is something that is certainly a part of Midsummer, as, as it is lots of, um, you know, creative art spaces as well. Um, does minus eighteen have a um, you know policy around um, what the government should be doing around this kind of thing, or you know how you sort of engage in talking to young people around um, drug taking culture? Well, uh, all our events are drug-free, alcohol-free and smoke-free events um, as uh, is appropriate, I guess, for the age group. Mm-hmm. But um, I, we don't have a necessarily an organisational uh, policy around pill testing because of that reason. I have a yep. personal um, um, uh, perspective on pill testing and I believe that, you know, if young people are going to take um, illicit drugs and what have you, then it's... Um, it, it needs to be um, done in a way that is, is as safe as possible. So mm. pill testing, I think, in many ways helps uh, um, circumvent some of those those uh, inherent sort of problems. I mean, there's just no way of really knowing unless you do those tests. So I think that's a really important thing to sort of maintain. I read a good uh, analogy. Uh, Peter Fitzsimmons was saying, you know, we, we obviously don't want anyone to speed in a car. You know, we prefer young people or people mm. of any age aren't engaging in risk, risk, uh, risk, risky activities. Mm. But people do you put on a seatbelt, you do things to mitigate the risks associated with that risky behaviour. Mm. I think pill testing seems to be one of those. Yeah, and look, our philosophy has always been one of education and empowerment. You you give people the right tools and you equip them with the right knowledge and they're empowered to make their own choices. Ultimately, that's how we create sustainable um, um, personalities and identities and uh, keep people safe. There's been a lot of talk as well uh, in the last few months about programs in schools, you know, which Minus 18 have been you know, big supporters of and part of rolling out some mm-hmm. of the um, safe school material, mm-hmm. uh, supporting the rollout of that. There's obviously been some political heat associated with this. Mm-hmm. The Liberal Party attempted in some uh, spaces to drive a bit of a wedge in this in the last state election. Mm-hmm. What do you see um, 
your role in schools been over the next uh, 12 months? Yeah, I, I do think it's very unfortunate that um, LGBTIQ youth have been so politicised. Um, it's usually the most marginalised and, and vulnerable um, communities that mm. get um, dished out and serve these types of... Um, this rhetoric, but um, um, look, our view, our view in terms of education is that we're still going to uh, continue to educate uh, schools that are wishing to understand a little bit more about the LGBTIQ spectrum, understand uh, about gender non-conforming and trans and non-binary people, and um, how to um, create inclusive and safe spaces uh, for for these young people uh, in in school environments, because ultimately. Um, you know, it is the foundation. Like schools are the foundation for the rest of your life, and it's important to sort of start that agenda right. Mm. Um, Tony, I'm interested in your your own journey to being the general manager of Minus 18. I was looking online. Um, I see you worked uh, for shipping and, and things like this, like yeah. smart shopping, e-commerce type background. Mm-hmm. What's been your pathway from from that space to you know this this quite um you know advocacy and, and activist space that you're in now. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I um I, I've been within the industry for about twenty years. I've been working in marketing. I started off in education. Uh, I moved through startup culture, um, internet um, type businesses. I um I did uh, several years in agency land. So I worked for advertising agencies and branding consultancies, some of the biggest branding consultancies in the world. In fact, um, I worked for a digital agency, and uh, most recently, you mentioned I worked for a cryptocurrency uh, organization as well. Um, but after I did all those things, um, after the marriage equality, um, um, the uh, the postal vote, um, I really um, was very much affected by the postal vote. Um, I've been with my partner for 20 years, and um, it was very, for the first time in my life I was feeling very frightened and fearful of what the future would look like. And so I vowed at that point that um, I wouldn't um, stand back and just let um, you know the the society dictates sort of what what my rights are and responsibilities are. So I, I took it on my own stead to to join an LGBTIQ organisation, and minus eighteen has always been um, uh, an organisation that I've admired for some time. It's been around uh, since uh, the early the late nineties um, in some shape way, way shape or form, um, and and so I joined the organisation um, uh, last year around about June July, and that progress is just um it, we've just seen a lot of growth in response to things like um the um the the political rhetoric around um uh, lgbtiq students in religious schools mm. uh and uh we've seen um an uptick in terms of people's confidence um uh, in relation to uh what's happened with the marriage equality vote as well mm. so there's a lot more of that kind of um um nuance to sort of navigate as well as the ongoing kind of dialogue around um, the validation of people of uh, gender non-conforming um, oh. identities. Uh, I think that's something that's um, really bubbling to the surface that we really need to stamp out. And uh, we're really encouraged by the young people that we work with and uh, encouraged by their bravery and their courage. And um, that's really what spearheads us. Well, it's been great to talk this morning. Nice to meet you. And, um, yeah, for all of our listeners, Midtown Festival does kick off on the 20th of, uh, of January, which is next Sunday. Um, there's a big carnival, as James mentioned. There's events across the week and a big party at the end. So check it out online at Midsummer. And, uh, yeah, you've been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. We're just coming to the end of the show now. Uh, next week, we'll obviously be back with a whole lot of new guests. And, um, and up next, I believe is Women on the Line. It is, and uh, yeah, we'll be back next week, but everybody should uh, stick around to the other breakfast shows. I mm. know that the um, 
Tuesday Breakfast Show tomorrow is um, been running a special kind of summer education series, looking at different topics that, um, or you know, different words that kind of come up across the the left and looking into meaning of those kind of things. So. Yeah, it sounds like great listening. I'm looking it forward does. to listening myself. Well, thank you, everyone, and I'll see you next week.